Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, socially distancing from the borough of Queens. I'm Adam Forestein, still isolating in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, weathering the pandemic in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, July 9th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, our STAT colleague Nicholas Florco joins us to discuss a somewhat surreal week in Washington, with President Trump putting pressure on the FDA and CDC to bend to his will. Next, our colleague Eric Budman calls in to talk about his latest story, a moving piece about a Boston hospital kitchen worker who died from COVID-19. Finally, we'll bring you another lightning round with hot takes on a newly filed Alzheimer's drug, a big cash haul for one coronavirus vaccine developer, and some testy times for another. But first, a word from our sponsor. Alnylam Pharmaceuticals has led the translation of the Nobel Prize-winning discovery of RNA interference into an innovative new class of medicines. RNAi therapeutics treat disease differently than other types of medicines by silencing the expression of the genes that make disease-causing proteins. Our pioneering work has delivered the world's first and only approved RNAi therapeutics, and we're just getting started. Learn more about how our science is changing the way medicine treats disease at alnylam.com stat. That's A-L-N-Y-L-A-M dot com forward slash stat. This has been a trying week for the otherwise apolitical bureaucrats running the nation's health agencies. First, President Trump put pressure on the FDA with a tweet about a potential COVID-19 treatment that scientists have all but abandoned. And then he publicly criticized the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on the subject of reopening schools, all while the White House formalized its plans to quit the World Health Organization. Joining us to discuss the situation is STAT Washington correspondent Nick Florco. Nick, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the FDA. On Monday, President Trump tweeted his support of hydroxychloroquine. That's a malaria drug whose benefits in COVID-19 have been pretty thoroughly debunked. Trump demanded that the FDA, quote, act now, end quote. So, Nick, what position does this put the agency in? Well, it puts them in a precarious one, that's for sure. As a reminder to listeners, the FDA issued an emergency authorization for hydroxychloroquine earlier this year, which is basically like a kind of like a quasi approval. Uh, And then they decided to rescind that authorization after a number of studies began reading out showing that the drug wasn't effective and that it could potentially be harmful. And that reversal was pretty bruising for the FDA's public image. And now it seems, at least from that tweet and from some remarks made by Trump's trade advisor, Peter Navarro, that the White House actually wants the FDA to reverse that decision again. That, as far as I know, would be unheard of. I mean, it's really just an extraordinary moment. There's already been this huge concern for years about political pressure being placed on the FDA and how maybe the FDA should be independent, like the Federal Trade Commission, for example. And never before has a president been so publicly pressuring the agency to reverse a decision like this. And so a lot of the background to that is that there's been quite a bit of speculation that President Trump might pressure the FDA to approve a coronavirus vaccine in time for the November election, obviously for political reasons. So then late last month, the FDA put out some guidelines on what would make a vaccine approvable, and they seem to rule out what might be the president's ideal timeline. Does it seem like the FDA is kind of on a collision course with the White House when it comes to vaccines? I mean, it's pretty clear that unless we get miraculously good data and we get it really fast, that the FDA is going to be put in a rough spot. But how this all sort of plays out really depends on who you ask. I mean, honestly, some of the folks that I've spoken to are absolutely convinced that the FDA will lower its standards to please Trump. And others have a lot of faith in the regulators who are going to be reviewing these applications. I mean, a lot of 
eyes are going to be on Peter Marks. That's the chief vaccine regulator at the FDA. Already, he's been not so subtly cautioning publicly that the FDA really needs to be cautious here, especially if we want to convince Americans that they should take this vaccine, that the FDA really needs to keep its high approval standard. So I'm going to be keeping a really close eye on him, honestly, and and sort of what happens if he starts pushing back against the White House's wishes. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that a civil servant has gone up against the White House and found themselves in a really precarious position. So, Nick, a lot of this boils down to Stephen Hahn. You know, he's the FDA commissioner. He's been on the job for about seven months now. So what have we learned about his temperament when it comes to White House pressure? I mean, it's interesting to draw a distinction between him and former FDA commissioner Scott Gottlieb. Gottlieb sort of became famous for his ability to both disagree with the president, but then also not fall out of favor with him. He sort of was always this adult in the room that would explain why something wasn't possible in a very politically sensitive way. Stephen Hahn has been not that vocal, honestly. It's been really difficult to judge sort of where he personally stands on these issues because he seems to just sort of fall out of the limelight. He certainly is not a Scott Gottlieb in that he's willing to sort of carefully go to bat for the FDA against the president. But it's been a very odd experience watching him sort of deal with Trump. Do you think we should be somewhat worried by, I don't know, some of the Stephen Hahn tweets, which sort of have a dear leader quality to them? (laughs) I mean, you sort of expect that from any politician, right? Like they do serve at the pleasure of the president. Um, I think, honestly, what really matters is sort of what happens behind closed doors. I mean, even Scott, who was good at pushing back against the president publicly, you know, was very complimentary of him in, in public. So it sort of depends. I mean, it's been interesting to see him try to sort of avoid jabs from the president, but it's too early to tell, in my opinion. So let's move on to the CDC. The agency released a plan on how schools might safely reopen in the fall. Trump did not like that plan. Here's what CDC director Robert Redfield had to say about the situation in an interview on Good Morning America on Thursday. So our guidelines are our guidelines, but we are going to provide additional uh, reference documents to aid basically communities uh, in tr- that are trying to reopen K through 12s. We're going to do guidance for parents and or reference documents for parents and caregivers, reference documents for. So, Nick, what do you make of this back and forth? I mean, it's been a wild two days for the CDC, and they've proven themselves pretty inept at dealing with political pressure, quite honestly. I mean, so some backstory here. After the CDC put out its guidance on reopening schools yesterday, actually, the president put out a very angry tweet that lambasted the guidances for being too tough and too expensive. And it ended with a pretty ominous, I will be meeting with them with three exclamation marks. And then Later that day, the White House held a press conference with Vice President Pence, and on the same stage was the CDC director, Robert Redfield. And Pence said that the CDC would be releasing new guidance, and then Redfield gave this unbelievably awkward speech about how the CDC doesn't want its guidance to be used as an excuse not to open schools. And then this morning, as you already mentioned, Redfield went on Good Morning America to do damage control, and it ended up being a pretty bruising interview. I mean, he said that the CDC would not be revising its guidance. It would just be issuing more guidance, essentially. But then he repeatedly sort of failed to dodge these questions about whether this was being done because of political pressure. So it's really to be determined what happens and if the CDC does put out much weaker guidance or not. But it's very clear that a lot of pressure is being placed in the CDC and that Redfield seems pretty unprepared to deal with it. So is there anything we can read into in the, the differing reactions to this pressure between CDC and FDA? As you mentioned, 
one seem to demonstrate some ineptitude, the other is, is kind of hard to read, I guess. But does either of the agencies seem more likely to stand up to the White House when it comes under pressure? So historically, they've both had a pretty good reputation of doing that. But under the Trump administration, there's been a lot of really open questions as to whether either will. I don't know if you could draw a clear distinction between the two of them, sort of who's better at this, at least in this moment. It's just very clear that both are really struggling to deal with the political pressure under a Trump administration. So finally this week, Nick, the Trump administration followed through on its promise to withdraw from the WHO. How much weight does this decision have in global health? Well, I mean, it's a huge decision. America provides roughly 15 percent of the WHO's funding, not to mention we provide them with a lot of political capital. So it's a huge loss for the WHO if it happens. And what I mean by that is already this won't go into effect until next year. Uh, And that means that if President Trump is voted out and Vice President Biden is voted in, that he actually could bring the U.S. back into the WHO without doing much damage. And already uh, the vice president has said that if he's reelected, one of his first actions will be to rejoin the WHO. Well, Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. COVID-19 has now killed more than 130,000 people in the United States. For this next segment, we're going to talk about one of those deaths. Marie Deus, a 65-year-old Haitian food worker at a hospital in Boston, passed away in April. Sometimes the best way to tell a story about something very big is to go very narrow. And Marie Deus' story highlights some of the most troubling inequities being laid bare by the pandemic. Black individuals are dying at higher rates. So are people who live in cramped quarters, and so are the essential workers who don't have the luxury of working from home. Our stat colleague Eric Budman wrote a moving story about Marie Deus's life and death, and he joins us now to tell her story. Eric, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Eric, tell us, how did you find Marie Deus? What was your process like in homing in on this particular story among the tens of thousands you could have unfortunately picked from? From March to May, I was embedded in the incident command at both Mass General and Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I'd sort of heard about some issues with certain groups of workers getting sicker or sick at higher rates than others. And then one day in mid-April, I came in and there was a moment of silence for the first worker who'd died. They didn't name her. They just said it was a food services worker. And I wanted to know who she was and what sort of happened there. So tell us Marie Davis's backstory. What was her life like before she got COVID-19? She was born in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, and she moved to Boston in the 80s, in the early 80s, to escape the Duvalier regime. And um, she moved into a neighborhood called Mattapan, and I think like many Haitians, she needed work fairly quickly and uh, found work in nursing homes. And then after a number of years of working in nursing homes, she sort of took the step up to work for a bigger hospital system. So Marie was uh, the first employee at uh, at the Mass General Brigham Hospital System to die of COVID-19. And one of the system's first 
to get sick. You know, she was part of a trend of hospital workers who didn't have much patient contact, who got sick at higher rates. And, you know, this ran contrary to the expectation that it would have been frontline clinicians, you know, doctors, nurses, respiratory therapists who would be at the greatest risk of infection. So, Eric, what did you learn about what was going on there? You know, when Marie Deus first got sick, she was one of the first at um, Faulkner Hospital that the emergency team saw, and they thought, uh-oh, we know this person, we've seen her in the halls, and she has so little patient contact, who's going to be next, and what about us, who have so much more exposure to COVID-19 patients? This, you know, if she's getting sick, we must really be at risk. And the hospital wondered if this had to do with where workers lived, and they sort of suspected that it might be a question of community exposure rather than workplace exposure. But they weren't sure because it was entirely possible that it was totally possible that there was some hole in their infection control. And if there was, they wanted to fill it. But even if this was happening in the community, they wanted to try to do whatever was necessary to make sure that um, their workers were safe at home or on the job. So one of the themes you looked at was the idea of being a foreigner and the wariness that that can entail. Marie Deus often told a friend who was also a Haitian immigrant that she worried that if the hospital cut staff, she would be first. And Eric, you quoted that friend saying, quote, she knew if you can't come to work sooner or later, you may be losing your job. That's the only way we can keep up in America, you know, end quote. Eric, how do you think this is shaping outcomes in the pandemic? That's a really, really good question. And I think, I mean, Marie is a case in point where she felt sick and she didn't necessarily think her symptoms matched coronavirus symptoms, but also she was afraid to take time off. She took two sick days and then she felt like she needed to come back because she worried about losing her job. And I think for a lot of people there is this feeling that even if you are sick, you don't have the luxury of taking time off. You're afraid to get tested because if you get tested and you're positive and then people don't want you to come to work, that could mean uh, losing your job. And so I think those inequalities and the wariness of potentially being out of work means that uh, people don't feel safe enough to really find out if they do have coronavirus. And this was something the hospital found was that even though these groups like um, environmental service workers and food service workers who were testing positive at higher rates, they actually were getting tested less than groups like doctors and nurses. So your story also looked at how zip code tends to be a risk factor for COVID-19. And, and Deus, as you mentioned, lived in the neighborhood of Mattapan, which is a working class part of Boston. Can you tell us about how that neighborhood is experiencing the pandemic? I mean, I can't tell you sort of everything about what's going on in Mattapan, but certainly that within the city of Boston, Mattapan has the second highest rate of positive COVID tests, and it is extremely hard hit. Uh, I talked to the uh, chair of the neighborhood council who said that she personally knew 20 people who died of COVID. And Mattapan has an enormous uh, Haitian population. It's the epicenter of Boston's Haitian community. And Boston has the third highest Haitian community in the US. And when I spoke to a Haitian pastor in Mattapan, he said that through the month of April, 
he was getting one to three calls about a death and needing to perform a funeral every single day. And Mattapan also is a sort of particularly interesting case study in the Boston area hotspots because it has this sort of complicated history where in 1968, after the murder of Martin Luther King, a group of Boston bankers thought, uh-oh, we need to do something to make it look like we're combating racial inequality. And so they started offering housing loans to black families, but they only started offering those loans within a specific blue line. So it was a kind of shadow redlining where rather than just not allowing black families to get loans, they were actually offering them loans, but only within this very circumscribed geographic area. That is often pointed to as the reason for the demographic shift from Mattapan being majority white to majority black. But in fact, that shift had started in the years before that line was drawn. So that line, yes, was racist. Yes, was terrible. But it was sort of more of a symptom of what was going on than a cause of it. And then as that population shift began, then officials began to downgrade property values, which then meant that the neighborhood was cheap enough for new arrivals, like Deus's uncle, who came first. And so then it became sort of this Haitian epicenter. So Eric, you mentioned before that you know it was a realization on the part of hospital officials that the risk of infection for their staff had less to do with working at the hospital and more to do with the zip code in which staff members might reside. Is there anything that they've changed or instituted to try to deal with that? Yeah, there have been things that they're trying to do. So already, even before they sort of knew for certain what these numbers were sort of geocoded to zip codes, they had started sending out testing trailers and, you know, setting up testing booths in these hardest hit neighborhoods to try to just make people aware of what their COVID status was and then help them uh, self-isolate if they needed to. And they also started holding these meetings with the members of these groups who are really, in some ways, they're often sort of excluded from hospital communication just by virtue of the fact that they don't live on their emails the way, um, you know, physicians do. And so they've started a texting line for hospital policies about the pandemic. But I think at the end of the day, this is an issue that is really woven into the geography of our cities. It's woven into the reality of American healthcare. And so Yes, here are these band-aids that the hospitals are working on, but there's a lot more work to be done to address these enormous uh, inequalities. So, Eric, thank you for sharing Marie's story with us, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Next up, we're going to do another lightning round. And let's start with Biogen, which completed a new drug application for its Alzheimer's drug, Aducanumab. That was submitted to the FDA this week. A lot of people thought this was a big deal. And Damien, I want you to explain why. <laughs> well, that would require me to have a good explanation. I think for people who remember the, the saga that, that has been Aducanumab, is it, it's a treatment that seemed not to work 
um, and the trials testing it out were canceled. And then Biogen, of course, came back and said it actually seemed to work if you look at it a certain way and that they promised to submit it to the FDA. That submission got delayed, which led to a lot of fretting about the future of this treatment. Now the submission has actually taken place, which, you know, some people did see as as newsworthy. But it is kind of a box checking exercise because the big question surrounding aducanumab now is what the FDA actually thinks about the data that Biogen has and whether the FDA will approve it. That was the big question before. Now we just have a timetable for when that discussion might take place. So what's the next thing that will happen in, in this saga? What's the next news peg you're going to be looking for? Well, I guess everyone is now focused on about 60 days from now, which is when we will hear whether the FDA actually accepted the aducanumab application. So we'll know whether the review was actually taking place. That's kind of another box checking exercise, but yet still important because we'll sort of get a sense of, you know, again, whether these data are being reviewed and then we'll actually know sort of an approval decision date. So let's move on to uh, development in the quest to develop a coronavirus vaccine. Uh, the United States government is giving Novavax $1.6 billion to try to develop one. So that seems like a lot of money. Is it? It depends on how you look at it. On, you know, Objectively, $1.6 billion is a lot of dollars. And it actually is... Novavax has been around for more than three decades and has burned through about $1.5 billion in its quest to to successfully develop a vaccine, which it, it hasn't done. So if you look at it that way, the company is basically about to receive a check that will pay for three decades of, of being a biotech company. But at the same time, from the perspective of the federal government, which has been doling out quite a bit of money to various companies to accelerate a coronavirus vaccine, if you compare that $1.6 billion to the effect that this pandemic has had on the American economy and the positive effects that a successful vaccine would have by that same metric, it is kind of a drop in the bucket. And I would say, you know, what's what's fascinating to me about a lot of this is just the way that COVID-19 has be has allowed a lot of companies to sort of hit the reset button. I mean, Novavax is a company, like Damien, like you mentioned, that has been around for a long time, has never successfully developed a product, never successfully developed a vaccine. Um, and yet here they are, you know, with this opportunity to develop a coronavirus vaccine, now getting $1.6 billion, which, you know, is a lot of money. But also, you know, from a stock perspective, it's incredible, right? This was a stock that was trading around $3 uh, at the end of last year and is now trading near $100. So it's just a, it's an incredible transformation for a company which, you know, again, has sort of a, I don't want to say maybe questionable is not exactly, maybe it's too strong of a word, but has really never shown that it can produce a successful product. So moving on, Moderna Therapeutics is in the news again. This time, it's via a Reuters story. Uh, And that piece describes tensions and disagreements between the company and government sciences over Moderna's experimental coronavirus vaccine. So, Damien, why does this matter? I thought it was really interesting. So so there's a delay to the start of Moderna's phase three study. The delay seems to only be a matter of weeks, um, or at least that's, that's what Moderna says. And if that ends up being true, I think this will be a footnote to history if it's not forgotten. All hey, da- hey, Damien, who who reported that delay first? <laughs> uh, yes, that had had that first. Although, again, the Reuters story <laughs> that we're referring to, I thought was was fascinating because in illustrating the reasons behind that delay, the Reuters report suggests that it's a result of Moderna just kind of failing to get along with the government scientists who are very much, you know, at least according to the patents, equally responsible for this vaccine that they're pushing forward, and. 
you know, again, like I said, if, if everything works out, no one will remember this, especially if the vaccine ends up working and, and effectively saves the world, then whatever. But I do think it's interesting to keep tabs on moving forward because we haven't seen any of the other companies working with the federal government having this issue. And in fact, one of Reuters sources points out that they haven't had this issue um, with the other collaborators they have in industry. And it kind of dovetails with reporting that that lots of outlets, including including us, but also the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and CNN have published recently about, you know, Moderna, as we know, has a certain culture and it's, it's run by a fairly brash CEO in the form of Stefan Bonsell. And if that brashness, which helped get Moderna to this point, ends up being a hindrance for it following through on the great scientific promise that it claims to have, I think that will be a huge chapter in the Moderna ongoing story and in the United States response to coronavirus. And Damien, are we ever going to tire of Moderna stories? I can't speak for we. I I will say that, uh, you know, for for a single biotech company, you know, sometimes the coverage, including that's been authored by me, risks painting them as though like the fate of the world is in their hands rather than, you know, they, they are an institution in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. But, you know, again, people haven't tired yet. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Epinado and Teresa Gaffney, who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which guests you'd like to see on future episodes of this podcast. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, you can leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.